Welcome to the Fixing Healthcare Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Core, also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine Podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. Our guest today is Dr. Sachin Jain. Early in his career, he held leadership positions in both the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services and the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. More recently, he served for five years as president and CEO of the Caremore Health System and currently is the president and CEO of the SCAN Group, one of the nation's largest not-for-profit Medicare Advantage plans. Sachin, welcome to season eight of Fixing Healthcare. Thank you so much, Robbie. Great to be with you. This season is focused on leadership, an area in which you have tremendous experience and expertise. So let me start by asking you for your frank appraisal of the effectiveness of leadership in healthcare today. Well, Robbie, I think you know I believe that we have a leadership crisis in American healthcare. Uh, we've lost our ethical and moral compass. Uh, I think we say we're about one thing and then we do other things. Uh, and I think we're all complicit in, uh, in this leadership crisis because not only do we not acknowledge our own failings, but we're you know, quite polite to one another and fail to acknowledge the, the failings of each other. You, know, you see this now uh, every day in the pages of the New York Times. There's a story about aggressive kind of unethical practices that are taking place by health systems, things like surprise billing, things like aggressive uh, collection practices. This isn't why we came to healthcare. This is, these aren't the reasons we came to healthcare. And I think it's because we actually think of leadership more in terms of administrative roles and titles. And we don't think about leadership in terms of transformational you know, leadership of organizations and societies. When we think of leaders in healthcare, we think about CEOs and vice presidents and division directors and division chiefs, um, we're not thinking about Gandhi and Martin Luther King and you know people who fundamentally transform the world. And that's what I think we need more of in healthcare than anything else. I love your answer. And it makes me think about burnout and the lack of purpose and mission that exists today compared to in the past. How do you connect this dearth of leadership with what's happening to clinicians in the United States currently. Yeah, I mean, not to not to cite Karl Marx uh, too aggressively, but you know, we we've created a medical industrial complex, which has made people really feel small. Um, I think the average person in a healthcare organization feels like we are like they are, you know, insignificant, like they don't necessarily matter, that they don't have a voice, uh, that they aren't able to do the things that they need to do to improve the lives of the patients uh, who are in their care. And you know that is the source of the moral injury. It's this lack of a sense of efficacy and the ability to do the right thing. We have created too much space between the clinicians and the patients. That space comes in the form of uh, keyboards, uh, checklists, check boxes, 
non-value added quality measurement. We've, you know, in many ways made the practice of health medicine and the delivery of healthcare far more complicated than it needs to be. And I think that's because we've had leaders who've frankly taken their eye off the ball. Our job is as leaders is to serve the people who serve the patients. Uh, and our job is to serve the patients and like that you can't serve patients effectively until you're serving the people who serve the patients. And there are just too many examples of organizations where the leaders have made the, the people who actually do the work, the ones who create the value, feel insignificant and inconsequential when in fact they are the story, they are it. And we see more and more evidence of this happening every day. So much of the AI revolution isn't about how do we actually make the work of healthcare workers easier. Lots of people are talking about how do we need less, you know, fewer healthcare workers. That is not the answer. Let's dive really deep on this theme and begin in medical school and residency training. If you're going to fulfill the vision you're talking about, what needs to be different about medical education? Well, I think medical care takes place in a system and it takes place in a context. And I think one of the failings of American medical education, and I've been writing about this and working on this for, you know, over two decades since when I was a, uh, a medical student, you know, is that too often we don't necessarily train the trainees on the context in which they're operating. We teach them about uh, pathophysiology. We teach them about clinical medicine. We teach them about pharmacology but we don't necessarily teach them enough about the healthcare system. And so I believe that when a medical trainee is released into the world from their residency or fellowship or subspecialty training, they're released into the world without any knowledge or bearing on how the system actually operates. And in many ways, this lack of education is actually what is what has created what I think of as this physician administrator divide wherein we have a you know, different group of people managing and leading medicine than the people who actually understand medicine. And therein lies the, you know, like the, the kernel that has actually created the burnout problem. Because if, you aren't, if you're an administrator in healthcare and you aren't aware of what it actually takes to deliver care of, to patients at a granular human and personal level, you are more likely to... I think dehumanize the process of care. And so many people in charge of healthcare today have never seen a patient, have never laid hands on a patient, and actually are uninterested and incurious. And this is not to say that, you know, you have to be a clinician to be an administrator of care in, in America. I actually don't believe that at all. Uh, some of the best leaders in healthcare have no clinical training whatsoever. But you have to be curious. You have to want to know what's going on. Uh, Robbie, you're a surgeon. Uh, I'm an internist. If you're going to lead surgeons, if you're going to administrate surgery, you have to understand the OR almost like you're a surgeon. Uh, and if you want to, you know, manage inpatient care, you have to understand, you know, what uh, admitting a patient involves, what putting orders into a computer system involves, what discharging a patient involves, and there are just too many people involved in leading care who are not curious. Um, my first experience with this, Robbie, was actually uh, when I was at the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT a few years before you and I first met. And one of the most remarkable experiences was I was working in a federal agency that was focused on promoting 
and regulating electronic health records with a large group of people who had never actually used or seen an electronic health record. And then we wonder how we got to the system that we got to. I think, you know, these were people doing their very best. But again, I would say, you know, so much of what we need more of in healthcare is real, genuine curiosity. I had somebody come to my office the other day and say, oh, they're hiring a community health worker. And so they're, they're not kicking off this new clinical program until we have the community health worker in place. And I said, I said, why don't you go be the community health worker? Why don't you get into the field? instead of just hiring someone else to do it. So you actually understand the work that you're leading. And again, I think, Robbie, we've lost this. We've dehumanized this. We've, we've taken a step too far back from the unit that matters most, the unit where the value is really created, which is at the interface between a doctor and a patient, a nurse and a patient, a physical therapist and a patient, a pharmacist and a patient. That's what we need more of. Sachin, you and I are both advocates for value-based care, I'd like to use the word capitation if you'll let me use it. I yeah, recognize sure. it. it value-based care is it value-based care is just the new capitation. And many people don't know that. <laughs> so. Excellent. Excellent. I also teach uh, at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and incentives are a major part of the curriculum. Could you tell listeners your view relative to this issue about how vital it might be or not be, whichever you think, to shift our nation from fee-for-service to capitation. Look, I am uh, a huge cheerleader on value-based care. Um, I think, you know, I started out my career, you know, working with Michael Porter right after he re you know, released his tome on the subject of value-based care. But at the same time, I think that gives me a little bit of credibility to also simultaneously be, you know, a, a critic of it. And, you know, what I would say is, you know, the big issue with value-based care as it's been practiced and developed in America over the last two decades is that we are you know, fundamentally not reducing the total cost of care. And I think that's because we're living in two different worlds. Um, we're still living in fee-for-service. We're also still living in, in, in capitation in different forms. I also think it's because we're not saying the thing that needs to be said more, which is that we actually need to consume less care. We need to eliminate so-called low-value care. And the best way to do that is to actually make medical groups and health systems fully financially responsible for care. But then they actually have to, over time, lower the total cost of care. This has to be a solution for that healthcare cost crisis that we have in our country. Um, and so far, all we've done with value-based care is we've shifted dollars from one place to another. You know, instead of giving the dollars to a health plan, we may be giving it directly to the medical groups, but we're not actually creating a clear pathway to where we're actually spending a lower number of total dollars over time. The quip I made about um, capitation and value-based care being the same thing is one because I think value-based care has been practiced in the state in which we reside for a long time, Robbie. California, there's examples of groups that are globally capitated. Kaiser Permanente is probably the biggest and most prominent, but there are so many others um, that take a per member, per month payment and you know, commit to managing the care of the patient uh, for a period of time, usually a year, um, but because patients don't move as, as much as you might think they do uh, over many years. And what it enables us to do is to actually make, in, in its purest form, is make longer-term investments in prevention, chronic disease management, uh, you know, and ultimately try to lower total cost of care by avoiding the most expensive cost item in, in healthcare, which is the hospitalization. So we're you know, laser-focused on reducing hospitalizations. What frustrates me is that 
there are so many people in American healthcare, academics, uh, you know, cl clinicians uh, who act like this is a brand new concept. What they just need to do is they need to get on a flight, uh, fly to LA LAX or SFO. They need to meet, you know, me or you, <laughs> and we'll show them what it is. And there's some really great attributes to value-based care. Uh, and then there's also some risk to value-based care, which is, um, you know, excessively aggressive use of utilization management, you know, potentially not, you know, slow adoption of innovative technologies and therapeutics. Um, and so, again, I think we just have to have a much more authentic conversation about value-based care, knowing that, you know, you and I are both, uh, you know, huge champions for it. But I think where we, we, we have had a bit of toxic positivity around value-based care, where it's almost impossible to say something critical without someone saying, well, then are you pro fee for service? No, of course not. Uh, what we are is, you know, pro, you know, radical common sense. One of the things that I believe strongly is that if you're going to capitate, it has to be at the delivery system level. Physicians, hospitals, care providers. If you capitate at the insurance level, which is where most capitation is done in the United States today, and then you pay hospitals and doctors on a fee-for-service basis, you get fee-for-service medicine. And then what you see is exactly what you described. You see the necessity to put in the breaks, the pre-authorization, the uh, multiple forms to get paid, all the documentation that ends up being copied and pasted and making the electronic record unusable. I don't think, I think we need to really clarify for the American populace that doesn't know what good capitation is, how you actually make it be a value-based system. Absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, that, that's the thing is that we, we have, you know, a bunch of folks who haven't actually thought that hard about this stuff, Robbie. And that's the thing that I think makes me, you know, most concerned about this topic is that I think people want to do, you know, value-based care until they actually have to contend with it and really deal with it. You know, I was at a conference just yesterday where I asked the audience, how many of you believe in value-based care? Everyone raises their hands. You know, every healthcare conference, everyone believes in value-based care. And then I asked them, are you on an HMO or a PPO? And then zero hands go up uh, for HMO. And then I said, tell me how you actually resolve the tension between believing in, you know, something that is narrow network value-based and the fact that you are yourself allowing yourself to go anywhere at any time. And again, I think we just have a, a, an epidemic of superficiality on these topics. Um, and so to double click, I, you know, I think, you know, the Kaiser model and, and, you know, the Caremore model where I practiced and that, that I led before, where you have, you know, employed docs with the right incentives to do the right thing at the patient level, but in the aggregate level have incentives to actually manage the total cost of care um, actually, you know, creates the right form of organization where you can actually deliver value-based care. And I think SCAN, uh, you know, the company I lead now, is all about enabling value-based care by giving global capitation to medical groups and health systems that want to own it. But you'd be surprised at how many organizations actually talk about value-based care that have zero interest in actually moving to full global capitation because on some level, they don't want to do the hard work uh, that you alluded to, which is actually fundamentally changing how people are paid at the unit level, which is, you know, more for their judgment and less for, you know, the individual units of RVU that they're producing for the, for the organization. 
So with another presidential election cycle starting, healthcare will once again be under the microscope and the topic of numerous campaign ads. I know last time Medicare for all was something that was pushed by some of the candidates and was a popular idea among many in the American public. As someone who has actually worked on the government and private side of healthcare in America, do you think Medicare for all is a even possible when our lawmakers are kind of beholden to the massive lobbying power that health insurance companies have in America? And B, uh, do you think Medicare for all is even a good idea when our government is full of bloat, it's inefficient, it spends money, it doesn't have like a high school kid with a credit card? Well, what I would say is I believe that the kind of truly American version of Medicare for all uh, will be some version of Medicare Advantage for all. Um, and when I say some version, I'll get into that in a second. But, you know, Medicare Advantage for all is, um, you know, distinctly American approach to full coverage. What I, what I mean by that is, Everyone believes, I think most Americans believe that we should have some form of universal coverage. Most Americans believe that the government, you know, should potentially fund healthcare, but they don't necessarily believe that they should administrate it and deliver it. And so, you know, a system through which the American government gave payments to private companies to administer health benefits um, would be a uniquely American solution. Now, the reason I say, you know, we have to kind of say, you know, I, I put an asterisk next to Medicare Advantage for All, is that I think we have to rethink, you know, Medicare Advantage, and we have to rethink all health insurance in general, which is, which started out as a way of paying for expenses. And where I think we need to take it is to a place where it's designed to actually keep you healthy. And in order to do that, we need to think about it differently. We need to think about it, you know, clinical first. What are the clinical design parameters we need to include in a health plan um, that would actually allow it to achieve health. Uh, and a part of that will also be getting out of this business of annual enrollment cycles. Uh, you know, I think we consistently underinvest in prevention because people change health insurance every year. Uh, we continuously underinvest in chronic disease management because people change insurance every year. The benefits never really accrue to the organization that's actually delivering the chronic disease management or the prevention. And so that's why I think insurance should be sold in three or five year cycles. Um, and so I think of a Medicare Advantage for all solution as one that could potentially be you know, uh, administered in three to five year cycles that would be clinical first with standardized benefits um, and competition would not be based on benefits, but competition would be based on quality and performance and clinical performance, true clinical performance, as opposed to uh, some of the, I, I think, uh, less relevant to patients, you know, clinical process measures. So what do, in your opinion, what is the right solution for people who either do not have access to insurance through their employer or insurance for small business owners who might not be able to cover the cost of health insurance benefits for its employees? Well, I think, you know, everyone should get some sort of defined contribution and that defined contribution could come from uh, your uh, employer. I think it could come from uh, your state government, your federal government, if everyone had a similar size defined contribution, then they could use that defined contribution to be able to buy a product that would serve them for a number of years. Um, that's kind of how I think, you know, where I think we need to go is to move away from all these different insurance channels, you know, small group, individual, Medicaid, Medicare. You know, one of our biggest threats to health equity, frankly, from my perspective, uh, is that we have all these different systems of payment that have you know, slightly different economic schemes. 
Um, and we've normalized it. Again, it's another example of where we've normalized the abnormal. And I think we should get to a place where there's really one kind of insurance product. The payment from that insurance product either comes from, from your employer or your government. And then you know everyone's using it to buy some version of some form of long-term healthcare coverage that has you know significant uh, investments in prevention and, and management of, of chronic disease. An area that's been a focus of mine for the past several months has been the retail clinics. Amazon, sorry, not the retail clinics, but the retail giants, Amazon, CVS, Walmart. And as I've studied these organizations, what I've seen is each of them assembling the pieces to provide a fully integrated, comprehensive care. What I see is that each of them now has a pharmacy. They have provider groups. You have Amazon having acquired One Medical. You have CVS having acquired Oak Street. Walmart has a deal with United Health and it's 70,000 employed physicians. I see them all investing in home health and hospital at home. I see them uh, gravitating towards Medicare Advantage, which is the one capitated program in the United States today. My view is that if physicians and hospital leaders don't come together to lead the way around capitation, and I mean that at the delivery system level, that the retail giants are going to come in, take over that area, displace the insurers, displace many of the physicians, displace a lot of the hospitals, and actually provide the type of approach with the excellence of care that you and I both believe in, focusing on prevention, avoiding complications from chronic disease. I don't see it happening in a year or two, Sachin, but I do see it happening over five to 10 years. I know there's a lot of hurdles and bumps along the road and all these places could trip and fall. But right now, when I look at the, at the service they provide to customers, it is better than what we do in medicine. It is more consistent. It is more timely. It is high quality. It, I can see it being a replacement for what we call American medicine. You think I'm aligned with you, or do you have a different view of the retail giants in this industry? So, so Robbie, this may be the you know one place where you and I you know kind of violently disagree. I so you know my belief is that leading healthcare delivery requires a fundamentally different culture than leading other kinds of enterprises um, because of the you know need to motivate a clinical staff on a human and personal level in a different way, and you know in many ways I would say that these larger retail organizations are oriented towards and, and larger corporations, as I've experienced, are oriented around creating a, cult, a homogenous culture. And I believe that, you know, there's a big cultural mismatch between the, the delivery of care and operating a big, you know, retail giant. So I think they're going to stumble, uh, actually. I think they're going to stumble mightily for the most part uh, because the, 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 you know, production function is actually quite different um, than what you described. I think the other piece of it is that there's just 
as soon as, you know, you might be able to create a perfect primary care mouse trap. Um, and, you know, one medical, let's just, let's just call it that for a second. It's, it's a great, you know, forward innovation in primary care. But the minute you need a specialty service or dialysis or, you know, a hospitalization, you have to, you know, plug back in to the legacy system. And that's why I think it's actually so hard to change healthcare is that, you know, you might be able to innovate one part of the system, but, you know, then you're plugging back into, you know, kind of the other pieces and, and, you know, it's not that pretty. The other thing I'll just challenge in your, in your question is that they've nailed the, re the retail experience. I mean, I will just say, I, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, some of the retail pharmacy giants, um, I am a customer of those retail pharmacy giants. Um, and I will tell you, their workers, uh, their pharmacists are, are overworked. Uh, they're undersupported. They're harried. Uh, they're running around. They're burning out. Uh, and there's no relief in sight for them. Sound familiar? That's a lot of like what I think the challenges are in traditional U.S. healthcare. Everyone's being asked to do more with less with none of the kind of investments in technological support or capabilities and none of the true appreciation of, you know, some of the nuance of what it takes to actually serve people every day. I sometimes say that in healthcare, we're literally delivering hundreds of thousands of SKUs every single day. That's not what these organizations are built to do. They're built to deliver 100, 200, five, maybe 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 SKUs on any given day. But in healthcare, where someone may come in with diabetes, diabetes with hyperlipidemia, di diabetes with hyperlipidemia, uh, hypertension, and depression. And in every instance, it requires a slightly nuanced approach. Sometimes it requires, you know, being a detective and taking the time to really understand, you know, something that's very subtle in someone's presentation. You know, lots of these organizations are not built to actually appreciate the subtle. And so that's the thing I worry about as more and more healthcare gets delivered by the retail giants is that reach, you know, large organizations do not appreciate subtlety. They do not digest subtlety, um, you know, very well at all. And, um, and I think healthcare in many ways is best delivered in smaller units where people are allowed to feel like people. And I'm not sure that that's what those larger organizations um, are built to do. I love this conversation and I'm not certain we're as far apart as you uh, posited that we are. And let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, first of all, it's not clear to me the strategy they're going to use. I read your superb paper called Tone Deaf Practice of Cross-Industry Comparisons, and I agree with you completely. You can't take the model they use to sell groceries and clothes and apply that directly into medicine. It is different. Question I have, and again, we're you know theorizing about what's going to happen uh, these companies are going to do. Kaiser Permanente to me is a great example. You have two halves. You have a Kaiser and a Permanente. Kaiser is an insurance company. It's a uh, the bricks and mortar of the hospitals and the nurses who support it. And Permanente is the care delivery. The doctors, the offices, the nurses who work directly with the physicians to provide that care. And when they work together in coordination, in mutual respect and delegation, that's when you see the great results in Kaiser Permanente. And as we both know, there have been other times when the performance 
has lagged and regions have been forced to close. I wonder when Amazon acquired One Medical, they gave up the idea that they were going to run the medical side and they were going to delegate it to a high performing, based upon people I know who get their care there, clinical organization. You're absolutely right. Today, it's primary care. But I could easily see they're hiring specialists to provide consultation to the primary care physicians, bringing them together in ways of using technology so that patients get immediate care. I can see over time bringing specialists into the group so it's no longer primary care and it looks very much like a permanente organization. I can see them contracting with leading institutions, Mayo Clinic, and saying, we'll give you 1,000, 5,000 total joint patients every year so you can provide superb quality and we expect you're going to do it for 40% less. And I'm going to make this up because the Mayo Clinic hasn't told me this, but they'll say yes because that volume will allow them to accomplish it, assuming they do what you mentioned earlier, find more effective ways to provide that care. So I think that opportunity is there. I, I, and that, that's what I'm seeing. What exists right now, if they were just going to take the model they're using and try to run healthcare, I agree with you 100%. It's not going to work. But if they are, and this is why I believe they moved from having their own, re, their own clinics to now contracting with One Medical. And the same thing CVS is doing with Oak Street. And I think the same thing that probably you're gonna see uh, Walmart do with the physicians employed by United Healthcare delegated so, to the doctors. So, so you're so, so Robbie, you're presenting the bull case. Now I'm gonna present the bear case. Uh, they, these acquisitions happen for billions of dollars. These companies are largely, mostly accountable to shareholders, not patients. In the acquisition case, they both have a growth story, but they also have a synergy story. And when they have a synergy story, they start talking about integrating shared services. Uh, clinical at Aetna may merge with clinical at, um, at, one, at, at Oak Street, just as an example, or HR at One Medical um, may merge with HR at Amazon. And, you know, to run these organizations, as you know, requires a lot of nuance, a lot of things that are very specific to the specific context. And the one thing large organizations don't do well, uh, unless they're deliberate about doing it well, is nuance. Um, and I've worked in organizations, you know, large, you know, publicly for trade, you know, publicly for profit, uh, publicly traded for profit companies. Um, that where, you know, there is a lot of pressure towards kind of corporate conformance as being, you know, the thing that the corporation needs to do to mitigate risk. And, you know, regulating health plans is different than regulating, you know, medical groups. And unless these organizations commit, Robbie, to nuance and appreciating and respecting that which makes, you know, Oak Street, uh, you know, Oak Street and that which makes one medical, one medical. Um, you know, they, they may struggle. Now, if they do, however, you know, make those kinds of commitments and develop that deep understanding of the nuance, you are absolutely right. I think the bull case is achievable. I've just seen a lot of examples upfront and, and personal 
where the leadership isn't as enlightened and the decision making, you know, isn't quite as nuanced. Uh, and the sort of overarching strategy that you articulate that kind of form the basis for the deal, you know, eventually just gets lost as people change and, you know, quarterly earnings targets change. Uh, and as a result, you know, you know, we end up with some watered down version of what could have been. And so that's the, that's the bear case. Candidly, I hope you're right. And I think, you know, there's a lot of good people in all of these organizations. Uh, I think CVS is a really strong organization. I think Amazon is obviously, you know, tremendously strong organization. I just think they've got to make a deliberate shift and say, we are now in the business of delivering care. And that is different from all the other things that we do, even though we're excellent at the things that we, we do in the other areas, this is going to be different. We've got to learn some, you know, some new skill sets and we've got to build some, some strong muscles. Um, but those, you know, these are two, two companies, but everyone is trying, every retailer is trying to make a healthcare play these days. Best Buy is, Dollar General is. And again, I think it's going to, these things are going to either live or die or, or, or win or lose based on leadership and culture, you know, full stop. That's where I think we completely agree that if they try to impose a different model onto the care delivery, I agree with you, they're going to fail. I guess I have some optimism that they recognize the limitations. That's why I think they have backtracked to acquire these other groups. Uh, I think that they are approaching capitation. I think Medicare Advantage is a major focus of theirs. And I think they recognize that once they can, assuming they can figure out Medicare Advantage, and you're a world leader in Medicare Advantage, it's what you've done across your entire career, and you know how complex it can be. But once they figure that out, I think their next move will be to go to the self-funded uh, businesses, which, as you know, account for half of the privately insured people in the United States today. And once they have that, then it's not a big leap to go into full insurance capitation. But let me make one last comment that I think aligns with exactly what you talked about, the pharmacists, which is I am not a proponent that retail, that retail giants should lead the way. I believe it should be led by doctors and by nurses and by uh, skilled hospital individuals. But what I also know, or at least I think I know, is that if clinicians don't step forward, if they don't find a way to take capitation, to take the risk, to improve the performance, to drive the quality, to maximize prevention, to do the things that you and I both know work, then I think the retail giants are going to come in and take over. And I think that they then will, the clinicians of today will regret they didn't make the moves that you and I both deeply believe is best for patient care. So that's where I think in the end, I see this, I would say equally as a threat and an opportunity. It's a threat if people do not take the lead. It's an opportunity to drive the change that I think, as you say, we've talked about in our nation actually for close to 100 years. Let me move on to uh, the paper you wrote. You mentioned it earlier about the inauthenticity epidemic in healthcare. And let's uh, look at this in greater detail because you mentioned in the article, and I think listeners will be really interested in it, to more deeply understand how it impacts clinical medicine. 
How does it get the patients to have a inaccurate view of the care that they require, of the outcomes that are likely to result, of the improvements that are possible? Give uh, listeners a broad view of what they need to know relative to their own medical care. Yeah, look, you know, let me let me say what 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 I mean when I say that there's an inauthenticity crisis in in American healthcare. I think you know there's not a healthcare conference that I go to where people aren't proclaiming results that are too good to be true, that sound too good to be true, and oftentimes are too good to be true. You know, we talk a lot about moving to value when we're not actually really fully moving to value. Um, you know, we talk about great programs that we're running when we realize that they don't actually affect or impact most of the patients that are actually served within an organization. And I think you know, many too many efforts to improve care are more superficial than they can or should be. And I think that that superficiality leads us to believe that we're making more progress than, than we are. It leads patients to believe that care is, is going to be, is better than it's going to be. And it leaves innovators feeling like there's less work to do because they believe that others have already got it under control because, because they believe what they're hearing at the conferences and they believe that you know, these organizations are making the difference that they're making. The most egregious example of, of this kind of behavior, of course, was Theranos, where we failed to necessarily you know, assess, and a lot of smart people failed to assess even the most you know, basic claims about the efficacy of you know, the Edison test that, uh, that Elizabeth Holmes had introduced. But there are many other examples of Theranos that play out in healthcare. They, don't, they may not reach the level of criminal fraud but they come close because we're making claims that aren't necessarily backed by anything real. You know, you see companies claiming that they reduce readmissions at a certain percentage, when in fact that that result was achieved in one market at one moment in time and has never been re reproduced since then. You see companies talk about how they improve medical loss ratios, making you think that they're actually changing care, when in fact all they're doing is coding better, capturing more revenue, and then as a result, you know, decreasing the ratio of medical cost to, you know, revenue captured. And then they say that, they're, that they have a medical loss ratio improvement. These are the games that we play in our industry and that we've normalized. I, you know, the thing I talk about, Robbie, is, is that we've normalized the abnormal. Um, in, in any other space of our lives, we'd call this stuff, you know, dishonest. We'd call it fraud. We'd call it abnormal. In healthcare, we call it salesmanship. And... Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to be vulnerable for a second. I'm guilty of it too. I've, I've done all the things I just have said, you know, others are guilty of, but, you know, I've kind of made a deliberate shift, Robbie, uh, as I've, you know, kind of led, you know, healthcare organizations now for, for the better part of this decade. And I've said enough is enough. You know, we can tell our stories externally and make people feel like we're doing great work, but internally, we've got to be able to look at ourselves and look at each other and say, are we really making a difference? Are we really achieving our mission? Are we really serving people in the way we say we're serving them? And the reason we have to do that is because that's the thing that's going to make us get better. Um, if we have the honest conversation with ourselves about whether we are the thing we say we are, then we're actually going to get better. And I think what's happening right now is we've taken the external salesmanship and we've made it the internal salesmanship. And people are constantly selling each other about things that just aren't true. I was at a company, I was involved with a company where you know, a leading executive got on stage and said, we now have a fully 
uh, interoperable health record. And I said, wow, like someone wrote some really uh, inaccurate lines for this person. And the person doesn't even know that what they're reading is not accurate because nobody has a fully interoperable health record. So again, this, the words were set on stage and then nobody in the audience actually challenged it because we've just normalized this um, you know, overinflated hype talk. And I, so what I'm advocating for in my, my gentle way uh, in, in my Forbes column is that we get back to just telling the truth. Um, we get back to calling things what they are. We get back to saying that you know something that uh, is blue is blue and something that's gray is gray and something that's orange is orange instead of saying that the thing that's orange is actually red and the thing that's blue is actually purple. Because you know once we start doing that, then we'll have an honest assessment, an honest statement about what the issues are. And it's that, that honest statement about the issues and the problems and the current state is what's going to drive the solutioning to get us to a better state. I concur completely that this is a problem and it needs a solution. What I am not sure of is how to make it happen. My observation over the past several years is that we've talked a lot about what should be, what must be, and nothing happens. We should address burnout and it's as bad as it's ever been. We should address uh, racial uh, inequalities and it's as bad as it's ever been, maybe worse. I could go down a list of 20 things that should be. How do you see your proposal becoming how we actually interact with each other and how do we overcome the challenges and difficulties of today? Well, I think we have to change what healthcare leadership looks like. We have to start naming names. We have to start um, calling our baby ugly. Uh, we have to be willing to, or you know, acknowledge some of our own warts, some of our organizational warts. You know, it doesn't mean that we have to kind of immolate our, ourselves publicly, but internally, you know, the culture needs to be much more oriented around accurate and true assessment and statements of fact as opposed to opinion and, you know, validated facts as opposed to surmised facts. This is the work that we need to do. And it's a cultural change. And I, it's one of the reasons, Robbie, I spend as much time as I do with early career trainees, um, you know, medical students, residents, you know, fellows, you know, junior faculty, many of them, you know, asking the question, how do I make the most impact? And I say, you've got to be honest about what's working, what's not working. They say, well, that kind of talk is not necessarily valued in my institution or organization, to which I always respond, being a change leader is not easy. Anyone who's ever tried to change anything has faced resistance. Anyone who's ever tried to make something better has actually in some ways shown up as the crazy person in the leadership meeting or the room. But it's those crazy people, if you'll allow me, who actually make the difference in the end. It's the ones who are, are comfortable with friction, who actually challenge the broken status quo. And you know, some of what we've done in healthcare leadership is we've trained people that leadership is about consensus, leadership is about getting along, um, leadership is about blindly supporting each other or supporting organizational direction, even if it doesn't really make sense. And that's how you've had all these high profile issues that have arised with some of the biggest health systems in the country around you know, surprise billing, you know, excessively aggressive uh, collection practices, it's because, you know, to be a quote unquote executive in those organizations, you had to be a team player. So even if you thought a practice was abhorrent, uh, you still stood by it because 
That's what being a quote unquote leader looks like. And the way to do it is, is to actually, when somebody is courageous enough to stand up and say the crazy thing and be the crazy person in the room, the way you do it is through allyship. You stand up and you say, I agree, I support this person. And then you encourage others to do the same thing. And all of a sudden, that quote unquote strident voice in the room is no longer you know, a solitary voice in, the, in, the, you know, in, a, in a sea of you know, kind of feeble consensus making, but instead is a supported voice uh, that's kind of encouraged. And again, that kind of courage encourages other people to be courageous. And then all of a sudden, you're starting to catalyze true organizational change. This stuff's not easy. Um, no one ever said it was. Uh, but again, I think we have to train a next generation of leaders who are leaders in, again, the, the Gandhi, you know, Martin Luther King version of leadership instead of, you know, leaders and the forgettable, you know, health system executive, you know, model of leadership where, you know, someone does their job and keep the place afloat, um, but don't do the things that need, need to happen to actually truly allow the organization to achieve its mission. So Robbie and I have been doing this show for a few years now and have heard numerous brilliant healthcare leaders with amazing ideas on how to improve healthcare and lower costs. Go to any healthcare conference in the country and you'll hear the same thing, brilliant people with brilliant ideas. Yet here we are in 2023 and healthcare premiums and deductibles are still increasing at an exponential rate and out-of-pocket costs for consumers are becoming unbearable if they aren't already. Uh, so much of the bankruptcy in America is from people who cannot afford to use the medical insurance they already have. Why, when there are so many brilliant people and ideas out there, is this still getting worse and worse? Do Americans of middle class and lower have any realistic hope for affordable health care in the near future? Well, I mean, I will tell you, I think this medical debt problem is a big deal. Um, it's one of the reasons why that we announced this week that we were going to be retiring, um, you know, more than $110 million of medical debt with a donation to RIP medical debt. You know, we believe that medical debt is one of the biggest obstacles uh, that people experience when they actually access care. I mean, it's a deterrent to accessing care because people are afraid of the surprise bills and, and very high costs of, of receiving care when, you know, you're not, uh, when you're in a high deductible health plan like most people are. Um, I think, you know, the real folly in the, the last two decades of U.S. healthcare discourse is our obsessive desire to believe in the consumerist myth. People believe that consumerism is going to save healthcare. And in fact, you know, giving people low first dollar coverage so that they could become healthcare shoppers, to me, actually goes down as one of the dumbest ideas that we've, we've bought into, um, despite how, quote unquote, smart, you know, many people have been. I believe uh, that you know, we fundamentally need to give people coverage uh, and it, not giving them coverage is the reason that we end up with high degrees of, of medical debt and, you know, people being sicker than they need to be because they are actually delaying or foregoing necessary medical care because of fear of, of the bill that they're going to get. Um, when, when we are designing health plan products at Scan Health Plan, we design it with affordability in mind. And, you know, our most popular product which is our classic product, we have over 100,000 people enrolled in it, actually has a maximum out-of-pocket of $499. That's a Medicare Advantage product. And you know that means that our products are not bankrupting people. It means that people are accessing care because, you know, necessary care because they can, and they know that we're going to be there to backstop them if needed. And again, we've kind of gone away from the, what insurance is uh, and what insurance should be 
there's a, there's of course the cost equation to this too, which is medical care delivery has gotten excessively expensive. Um, some of that has been positive. You know, I'll say we've had therapeutic innovation that I think has solved previously insoluble problems, but a lot of it is negative, which is a lot of care that could have been avoided is not being avoided um, because we are, you know, of our system of finance and our inadequate investments in prevention. Take, for example, the complications of diabetes. You know, people with untreated or undertreated diabetes end up with uh, neuropathy. They end up with retinopathy. They end up with kidney failure. So, you know, eye disease, nerve disease, kidney failure, um, all if you have untreated or undertreated diabetes. Early stage diabetes is actually relatively easy to treat. Um, There's some good medicines. But again, we inadequately fund prevention. We inadequately fund chronic disease management. And the big bill comes later when we're all, you know, more than happy to, as a society, pay for, you know, avoid what are ultimately avoidable procedures like retinal, you know, uh, laser treatments, uh, retinal medical treatments, uh, you know, expensive medicines for nerve pain, dialysis, which is a very expensive procedure. Um, so again, I think our system and, and hospitalizations, many of which would potentially be avoidable. So again, I think we need to be reallocating our dollars towards prevention. Part of that is giving people higher degrees of, you know, first dollar coverage uh, so that they are getting the, the kind of care that they need and the kind of preventative services that they need up front. Sachin, you've been an example of the type of individual you're trying to find, train, encourage. You did it in community clinics when you were at the Harvard Medical School. You've done it at Caremore. You're now doing it at SCAN. I just want to commend you for walking the talk, leading the way, and I look forward to all that you're going to accomplish in the near future. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks so much, Robbie. Really, really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.